Turn, if you will, to that sixth chapter of Isaiah. Just a few moments, we're going to read these first eight verses in Isaiah chapter 6. Christian research statistician George Barna wrote a book several years ago, which he titled The Frog in the Kettle. Now, I need to very quickly say, do not try this at home. Barna used the illustration that if you dropped a frog into a pot of very hot water, that frog would immediately jump right out. But placing a frog in a pot of cool water and then very slowly turning up the heat yielded a very different response. That frog would remain there where it was quite content until it was too late. And the water reached a boiling point, killing the frog. And his point was that we as Christians and as churches today are content to allow ourselves to stay right where we are, not realizing the dangers around us. This can be applied to sin. It can be applied to deception. It can be applied to comparing ourselves to others. It can also be applied to churches and individuals staying in a nice, comfortable place as our effectiveness for God slowly dies. And the remedy for this is the title of my message this morning, Life-Changing Holiness. Stand, if you will. You follow as I read the first eight verses from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Join me as we pray together. Father, we ask that you would open our minds and our understanding of these words from your word today. Father, help us to see what you have for us. Give us just a glimpse of your holiness today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Number one in your outlines today, we must discover the holiness of God. There's an observance in the ordination of a priest called the litany of supplication. And at this time in the ordination, the candidate lies down on the floor face down as a sign of their submission before holy and righteous God. In 1961, Missionary Alliance pastor and author A.W. Tozer 
was given the opportunity to speak to a group of ministers on the subject of his choosing. Not surprisingly, he chose to speak on the holiness of God. And in part, he said this, I believe we ought to have again that old biblical concept of God which makes men lie face down and cry, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. This would do more for the church than everything or anything else. My take on that, on that subject is this, and we have a slide for it. In churches of all sizes, from the smallest fellowship to the largest nationally broadcasting ministry, there is nothing the church needs more today than a fresh encounter with the holiness of God. There are too many people today who stand in sacred places such as this, regardless of the church size or setting, and mistakenly believe that the spotlight is on them and who they are and what they can do rather than on our holy God. There's one preacher who likes to occasionally show up at church wearing a clown suit because he likes to just come up onto the pulpit and preach in a clown suit because he thinks it's funny. How sad for people of God to not only allow it, but to encourage it. When Isaiah experienced the holiness of God, he was in the temple seeking God. And so those of you who may have come today seeking and hungering the holiness of God, you have come to the right place. Verse 1 begins, In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah experienced such a life-changing event that when he wrote about it years later, he documented the time for it. There are historical documents indicating that King Uzziah died after a 40-year reign. It had been a long time of peace and prosperity and growth not known since the time of Solomon some 200 years earlier. But his son was considered a weak replacement, and there was also a growing threat of being conquered by neighboring Assyria. And so it was a time of unrest, a time of uncertainty, a time of a lot of questions. There are other sources that maintain that Isaiah wrote these words some several years later when the people of God were not listening to him as a prophet and the king at that time was leading them farther away from God. So either way, whether it was the earlier setting or the later setting, he begins it all by saying it all started that year that King Uzziah died. More than simply trying to pinpoint the setting what is more important is the message there. Isaiah had a vision, and not just a vision of prophecy of God for his people. This was more than God just using the prophet of the day to relate a message to his people. That would come later. But at this point, Isaiah was simply documenting this is where it all started. This was a life-changing experience. He continues, I saw the Lord and it changed his life. And the reason it changed his life was because he came face to face with the holiness of God. I believe that when we can have just a fleeting glimpse 
the way that Isaiah did, of God's holiness, it will change our lives as well. That fleeting glimpse was all that Isaiah had. Notice in the first verse, after saying that he saw the Lord, he then begins describing all of the details around the Lord's presence, but not God himself. He talks about the building. He talks about being filled with smoke. He talks about the seraphim. He talks about the train of the robe. He talks about the door hinges, but not God himself. I don't think he could. I think that it, he, was, he was too overwhelmed. It was too magnificent. He was too amazed. And we need to have that kind of unexplainable, supernatural experience with God. Because when that happens, we will come to realize it's not about us. It's all about him. Many of us have had those times, whether it was in a time of personal devotion or prayer, or in a revival meeting or a church service or a concert or a concert or a conference or something like that, when we knew beyond any shadow of, the, of doubt, we were in the very presence of God. Back in 1991, I was privileged to be able to attend the premiere of the, at that time, the 1991 edition of the Baptist Hymnal in Nashville, Tennessee. And there were several days of, of singing and concerts and meetings and conferences, and it was all leading up to the big reveal on that last night of the, of the new hymnal. And during those previous days, uh, there were smaller concerts uh, in different areas around town and around Nashville. And I went to hear Cynthia Clawson sing one morning, and it was in a a uh, small meeting room in a, in a, in a conference uh, hotel. And when she was introduced, she got up and she immediately explained that her accompanist was sick that day. And so she accompanied herself at the piano and sang several hymns. And then after several hymns, she stepped away from the piano and came stood at the front and she started singing a cappella. It is well with my soul, just from the hymnal, no special arrangement. And without saying anything, without asking for it, people in the congregation just started humming along with her. And there was soprano and alto and tenor and bass, and there were parts from all around the room, and it was glorious. Just a very quiet humming. We were her accompaniment. And when it got to that last verse people started singing and once again it was just such a glorious blend of voices and harmony and at the last word people leapt to their feet and started cheering and clapping and applauding and crying out for more everyone in the room except Phillips I was still sitting down and my head was bowed Tears were streaming down my face. I wasn't through worshiping yet. We've all had those kinds of experiences. Singing the choral arrangement of the majesty and glory of your name by Tom Petty does it for me every time. Oh, it's a big one. 
listening to the Sandy Patty Larnell Harris duet arrangement of I've Just Seen Jesus moves me beyond words. We've all had those kinds of experiences, musical or not, that we knew we were in the very presence of God. Your homework's going to be coming later in the service. But for now, let me just offer a very quick, easy suggestion. Take some time and recall one of those moments that you had one of those moving experiences with God. It may have been in a quiet time of devotion all alone. It may have been in a church setting. It may have been in this room. Take some time and just recall that time when you felt God's presence and just quietly worship. In trying to describe his experience in verse 2, Isaiah said he saw a throne sitting higher than he had ever seen before, and the train, just the lower portion of the robe of the great king, filled the temple by itself. We're going to have to ask Isaiah one day when we see him in heaven. There are those who think that in this supernatural experience, God was allowing Isaiah to have to see more than just the Jerusalem temple. There are those who believe that in a supernatural way, God was allowing Isaiah to see all the way to the throne of the king in heaven. And just the lower part of his robe, the train, had come down and was just filling the inside of the Jerusalem temple. Do you begin to understand something of the experience Isaiah had? After the train of the robe, he saw the seraphim. We don't know exactly what they were. The seraphim were thought to have a combination of serpent and bird and human characteristics. We don't know for certain, but we do know that they were some kind of supernatural heavenly beings. Later, Christian and Hebrew sources indicate that the seraphim were of the highest form of the heavenly angelic choirs. The seraphim. And we're not given the number. We don't know how many Isaiah saw. It doesn't say. Could have been three or four. Could have been hundreds. Could have been thousands. But he does give us a brief description. He says that they had three pair of wings. One pair was used to fly with another pair. They covered themselves. And then even though they were heavenly creations, they too were in the presence of the Almighty and so with that third pair of wings, they covered their faces. They were shielding their eyes from the radiance of God. And then we come to verse 3, and they started singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Some of your translations will say the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The ancient Hebrew language did not allow for changes in the forms of words the way we have today in modern English with our superlatives. We simply change the suffix of a word in order to change the intensity or the importance of it. We might say a sermon is long. Last Sunday's sermon was longer. I know that. Today is going to be, no, I won't even go there. Um, I caught a bass one time. It was a big bass. A few minutes later, I caught one, and it was bigger. Caught a couple of more. 
And then I caught one. That was number five. That was my limit. I had to quit. But that last one was the biggest one of all. We change words like that to increase the intensity. In ancient Hebrew, they would have said that bass was big, big, big. And so Isaiah said that the, the, the seraphim were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All they could do was, was find the best word they could use and then repeat it. Repeating it twice was for emphasis. That was... Uh, a very uh, significant use in scripture to repeat something three times is almost unheard of in fact our passage today using holy 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 we only have it in two places in the entire bible our passage this morning in isaiah and then again in revelation do you begin to see how unique it was how powerful it was the next phrase says the whole earth is full of god's glory Glory here is being used to try to describe God's expanse in human terms, terms that we can understand. Consider the size of the earth, the land masses, the mountain ranges, the deserts, the depths of the oceans, and think about all of that. And then hear verse 3 this way, the whole earth overflows with the glory of God. There's another illustration that I can give you. It's not exactly the same, but it's close. It's talking about the love of God rather than the glory of God, but it uses the same imagery. Frederick Lehman wrote this beautiful, beautiful hymn. It's called The Love of God. We don't sing it much anymore. Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Even as large as our planet is, it cannot contain the glory That's what the seraphim, that highest order of the angelic choir, sang that day, and it was enough to make the doors shake on their hinges. It happens today. With some of the rockets taking off from the Cape, maybe not as much as a few years ago when the shuttles used to take off, and, and people would talk about how thing, the walls in their homes here in Titusville would shake and how things in the cupboard would rattle even from the vibration from those engines, uh, engines coming across the water. Can you imagine being in the presence of a group of beings so powerful that their voices were strong enough to shake the doors on their hinges? And that wasn't even God's voice. These were God's servants that were making it happen. Isaiah was immediately moved. He had seen and had heard enough to realize that he was in the presence of our matchless, holy, pure, magnificent, and righteous God. Going back to verse 3 again, that word holy comes from a root word that means separate. God is separate from everything 
we can relate to, humanly speaking. He's not distant. That's not what it means. He is different from anything that our minds can understand. Where we are finite, he is infinite. Where we are human, God is divine. Where we are limited, he is limitless. Where we are frail, he is strong. Where we are flawed, God is perfection. Where we are sinful, he is pure and clean. Where we are guilty, he is just and righteous. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This experience would cause Isaiah to adopt into his writings the phrase, the Holy One of Israel. He used that phrase 30 more times throughout his prophecy. But now, there was another matter with which he needed to deal. Number two in your outlines, we must recognize our unholiness. Having come face to face with God's holiness, Isaiah now had to look back at himself. And it was more than just he being mortal caught a glimpse of something that was immortal. It was more than just fear from this supernatural experience. It was a deep sorrow that touched his life because he saw himself compared to the holiness of God. Remember where he was. He was in the temple. He was there for a reason. He and others had been worshiping, had even been leaders in worship. And they thought they were pretty good. They even thought they were righteous compared to other men's standards, but brought next to God's holiness, though, gave him a different perspective. What he thought was okay. What he thought was acceptable. What he thought was something even to be proud of. He realized that he was now so very far away from what God deserved. And this moved him to cry out in despair. Verse 5, some of your translations say, I am lost. Some of your favorite translations may say, I am ruined, or I am undone, or I am done for. Whatever your wording your translation uses, it signifies coming up short. Being lower than, being lower than a standard. What standard? God's standard. Romans 3.23 reminds us, all have sinned and fall short of what? God's glory. That's the only standard that matters. No matter how hard we try, when we look at God's standards of purity and goodness and holiness, we will always fall short. And when God's Spirit moves us to see ourselves as God sees us, we see sin in our lives separating us from Him. And that moves us to our next point. Number three, we must repent of sin. I said at the very beginning this morning that one of the greatest needs today is for the Christian community to come once again to experience the holiness of God. And with that experience comes confession. There's a trend among evangelical churches today of all denominations and it's been continuing for years, and it's only getting worse. And that is a lack of emphasis on confession 
in worship settings. Worship leaders and pastors are saying, don't make people feel bad. Don't make people think about their guilt. Don't let people have any cause to worry about anything. People come to church to feel good. And that's all fine and uplifting. But if people are not led to see themselves as guilty sinners before a holy and righteous God, we have failed. We must be led to repentance. Isaiah didn't try to hide it. He didn't try to excuse it. He didn't try to justify it or explain it. When I taught middle school, I used to see some interesting t-shirts one that came around for a couple of years at Christmas time said, Dear Santa, I can explain. <laughs> there was another one that I would see year round and I always chuckled every time I saw this particular student. It said, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> Whatever it was, it wasn't my fault. God doesn't want to hear our explanations. Because you know what? There are no explanations. God needs to hear from us what he heard from David in Psalm 51, I have sinned against you. It's been said that the three hardest words to say in the English language are, I am sorry. Isaiah said in verse 5, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. In ancient cultures, there were mouth purification rites that had to be completed before men could deliver divine messages. And some see this verse 5 as Isaiah beginning to come to a sense how, of how God would use him later in prophecy. And he wanted to dedicate his lips, his mouth, his words to God. Now that may be there, certainly, but I think there's another application that fits our theme better today. What Isaiah saw as an asset... What Isaiah saw as a gift, what Isaiah saw as a strength of his was nothing until it was given to God. Even that strength, that gift, that ability that we possess may be very good, may be something that we can in the right way be proud of. Who gave us that strength, that gift, that ability? We need to be willing to allow God to do that cleansing and purifying work in our lives. One of the seraphim took that heated stone from the altar and brought it to Isaiah's lips. Verse 6, the NIV says, Your guilt is taken away and sin atoned for. There is no painless cure for sin. Adam and Eve tried to cover their sin with leaves, and it didn't work. Blood had to be shed. An animal had to be sacrificed in order to cover their sin of rebellion against God, not just covering their bodies. And throughout the Old Testament, animal sacrifices continued to be the way that God instructed his people to atone for their sins. The animals had to be killed. And then one day, on a cross, in a place called Calvary, forgiveness 
was brought for all of the earth. But the price still had to be paid, and that price was death. Your homework today is to spend some time with the scripture passages. I've given you several scripture passages in your bulletins uh, on the theme of atonement. And if you're listening by radio today or following us online uh, and you don't have these specific scripture passages, just do a good concordance search or just simply go online and do an internet search on the theme of atonement, atonement scriptures, and see what God reveals to you through these verses on atonement today. We have the opportunity to claim into our lives the holy and righteous one who became our atonement. One last point today. Number four today, we must respond to God's call. We who have experienced God's forgiveness and his cleansing must respond to his call to service. After he experienced it, it was after Isaiah received God's forgiveness and his cleansing that he heard God's voice of calling in verse 8, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah responded out of love and out of gratitude for God, for what God had done in his life. And even without knowing where it would lead, he said, here am I, send me. Christian songwriter John Purifoy gave us these words, here Am I, Lord? Send me. Unto thee willingly, yielded I come. Show the path that I must walk. Compel me then to go. And if I stray, bring back the light of day. For here am I. Send me, I pray. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Precious Holy Spirit, come fill me anew. Give me wisdom. Send me strength. Grant that I may be a mirror of your never-ending love. For here am I. Send me, I pray. A man sat in a chair in his cabin in the Canadian Rockies, slowly freezing to death. John Elliott had logged many miles that day in the deep snows of mountain passes checking for avalanches. And with dust and exhaustion about to overtake him, he finally made it back to the safety of his cabin. Before starting a fire, before removing his wet clothing, he sat down just to rest. And as those blizzard winds swept through the cracks of that old cabin, the forest ranger was lulled to sleep, paralyzed by a false sense of pleasure surrounding him. Suddenly, his dog sprang into action and with unrelenting whines, turning then to ferocious growls, finally managed to rouse the near comatose man. The dog was John's faithful companion, a St. Bernard, one of a long line of dogs known for their heroics in times of crisis. John said later, if that dog had not been with me, I would have died. 
when you're freezing to death, you actually feel warm all over. And you don't want to wake up because it feels too good. If there is anyone, anyone here today who has not accepted Jesus as Savior, do not let these moments pass. Because I have to tell you, you are dying. And I'm not just playing on emotion. God's word says you are dying. Do not let these moments pass without turning to Jesus in faith and in repentance. And if you're not even sure what that means, you come and talk to me after the service and let's talk about it together. Many others today may be believers. But it could be that the cold winds of life are robbing you of the experience of being daily renewed by the holiness of God. Questions and uncertainties are keeping you from experiencing the warmth of God's blessings. Hear his voice calling you today. Don't wait for a permanent pastor. Don't wait until things get better. Don't wait until you have it all figured out and have all the answers. Place your life in God's hands. In these next few moments, I ask you to prayerfully consider this. What is God calling you today to do in your life, in your home, or in your church? What is God calling you to do? Let's pray. Father, I ask you to speak to our hearts today. Remind us once again of your holy, holy, holy presence. Father, may that cause us to see ourselves as you see us, completely unworthy, completely unrighteous. But yet you also see in us godly potential if we will just yield ourselves to you. And so, Father, lead us today to say, here am I, send me. In your name I ask it. We're going to sing a hymn of commitment. And as I say most every Sunday, this isn't for me. It's not even for this church. This is a time for you to respond in any way that God might be touching your heart. Would you listen and would you respond? Stand as we sing.